This weekend I was at an event uh, that a bank, investment bank put on. And I, well, first of all, I found out two companies have moved a ton of employees here, which I didn't even know, Cloudflare and Atlassian. Mm -hmm. And Scott actually, Scott and I flew back together at the same time. I didn't even know he, he was coming. He was coming here, Scott, the founder of Atlassian. And Roku has moved a ton of They're stuff They're all here, here yep. Um, and so that's awesome, you know. Cloudflare the newest, the others have been here a little yeah, while, but they've been yeah. growing. And, when I when I talk to them and other CEOs, you know, they say Silicon Valley is a great place to start a company and a horrible place to scale a company, and so they're all looking for other communities to to move teams to. Now, historically, the Apples and Facebooks of the world have put customer support here, which doesn't create new startups. You right. need Apple. It was Apple's biggest site, but it was not where all the engineers. Yeah, you were. need you need product people. Right, and so I'll, I'll be on the lookout. But if if Cloudflare or last, if they're starting to put product people here, that'll be fantastic for the ecosystem. Yeah, I totally agree. And obviously, Elon's stuff is great. I mean, it, it looks like there's um, real real momentum. Today on Austinpreneur, one of the most successful venture capitalists of all time, Bill Gurley, is interviewed by Joshua Bayer. Bill was born outside of Houston in Dickinson, Texas, before he went to play basketball at the University of Florida. In 1993, he received his MBA from the University of Texas and spent some time on Wall Street before joining venture firm Benchmark Capital. At Benchmark, Bill led investments in companies you've heard of like Uber, Grubhub, OpenTable, Stitch Fix, and Nextdoor, among many others. A couple of years ago, he retired from making new investments at Benchmark and moved to Austin. It's fun to hear a Texan who mastered Silicon Valley share insights and stories from his journey. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of the Austinpreneur podcast. Welcome to Austinpreneur, our show about the stories that made Austin, Texas a global hub for startups. The show is produced by Capital Factory and hosted by me, Nick Spiller. As a reminder, by joining Capital Factory, you can plug into the ecosystem where the stories on the show were set. Learn more about us at CapitalFactory.com. I want one of those single claps. All right, we'll, we'll give you a big single clap too. Everybody ready? You can, yeah. All right, ready, one big single clap? All right. All right, I felt left go. out. You got your single clap. All right, so um, we're gonna start it off where uh, I'm gonna ask some of the questions to start uh, for you know a little bit, and then we're, again, we're gonna open it up to the students as well. Just, just to put it in perspective, you were here in the kind of early to mid 90s, for your MBA, ninety-one, right? ninety-three. Yeah. So, um, what you know, just what was Austin like then versus what it, what it's like now? My, it's such. You'd think that'd be an easy question to answer, but my frame of reference is so different now than when I was, you know, twenty-seven or whatever. Like I don't, I don't even know that I was ingesting things that way. I mean. Sixth Street was still cool, and Rainy didn't exist. <laughs> so there's one. Um, Were you aware of venture capital? And a little bit, yeah. I had Austin a notion Ventures. that I wanted to be in it, and I talked to a couple people. There wasn't, um, 
there wasn't things like this going on, you know, or not that I had any exposure to. So, so that's obviously different now, and obviously the population's way different, and the high rises are way different. The skyline <laughs> has changed a lot since I've been here too. Um, and your path here, you know, you went to University of Florida, you spent some time on Wall Street, and, and then you pretty quickly headed out to venture, headed out to Silicon Valley, and you know, and, and, and became a venture capitalist. Um, is that, I mean, is that kind of like the typical VC path? I don't think there is a typical VC path. So there are a handful of people that came. I was a sell-side analyst on Wall Street coming out of Texas. And there's a handful, Mary Meeker, Danny Reimer, myself, Ben Rosen years ago um, that, that did that. But, but, it, but those are like the only four. And you know, Moritz was famously a journalist, and Dor was a salesperson, and so there's there's been people from all different types of backgrounds, um, and it's really diverse, like the set of the the prior skills prior to going into the business. Yeah, you just to put pe everyone's perspective of you know you, why you're here. So why why are you spending so much time in Austin? Did you are you officially moved to Austin? I have I have officially moved to back you know back you, you to Austin. You declare it as your home way back when yeah a couple couple of years now actually. So my wife grew up in Texas and I grew up in Texas and all our families here, and so when we empty nested and one of my sons is here in the front row, um, we we moved here from there. Yeah, I think that's a really common story. A lot of people move here because they had family here. Yeah, because they're going back to family here. Yeah, um, it's it's it's. I don't want to spend too much time. The on weather's this. a lot better in Northern California. It is. <laughs> I know. It's, you know it's, it's a lot of trade-offs and allergies and, and other things. I'm curious. Someone said this to me once, and I'm curious if, if this resonates with you at all. It did with me. They said, you know, one of the things about Austin versus Silicon Valley is that very few people move to Silicon Valley thinking I'm going to spend the rest of my life in Silicon Valley. The other way that it's obvious that. Northern California is quite transient is when you meet someone that was born there it's actually unusual like oh really like it's and it's maybe five percent of the people you meet so no. yes there's a lot of people come in um, the, the the flip side and something that you know I think there's work to be done in Austin is people that are super ambitious about wanting to start a company or wanting to be in the mix go there and and so it's a magnet and and one ironic challenge is austin is so much damn fun that you get people that make the decision to come here for that reason which you one could argue disqualifies them from being ambitious i know i'm like oh my god miami <laughs> like how do they even try right right well and there's there's that that's another funny thing that won't do well in a hr test but like you know, Seattle does well, and starting in October, it's dark until, <laughs> until like, April, right? right? And so people are, you know, working. Yeah, I went to school in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh was, you know, it's a work town, too. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I, think, I think there's a really interesting dynamic there because, you know, I've heard you say before, and I've heard many others that I really respect say, hey, Silicon Valley, you know, like Hollywood draws the movie stars in New York draws the finance people, Silicon Valley draws singer the, the best talent in the world, right? right? And, um, and if you really want to do the best, biggest, best things, you need to go there. And at the same time, obviously we're seeing so much massive growth here in Texas and in Austin, and not just in Austin, but, but all over Texas. And what that seems to be driven by is 
ex is exactly the quality of life people want to live here. And you kind of like, and more and more so when people can live anywhere, that's kind of driving where companies need to be, where other things need to be. I don't think it's some like obvious answer or anything, but I just think that's kind of like a, a balance that's, that's there, weighing There's on. another thing that, that a lot of people probably wouldn't be willing to talk about, but I will. Um, I like that. Yeah, which is the entitlement of the average worker in Northern California has become nearly intolerant. And someone, I was just at an what event. What does that mean? What's entitled their entitlement? What um, do you think they're worth? Everything from pay to how often they have to work to whether they have to come into the office to how many different flavors of granola they need at the snack tray. Um, the whole thing. And, you know, and I, this weekend I was at an event uh, that a bank, investment bank put on. And I, well, first of all, I found out two companies have moved a ton of employees here, which I didn't even know, Cloudflare and Atlassian. Mm -hmm. And Scott actually, Scott and I flew back together at the same time. I didn't even know he, he was coming. He was coming here, Scott, the founder of Atlassian. And Roku has moved a ton of They're stuff here. They're all here, yep. Um, and so that's awesome, you know. Cloudflare, the newest. Yeah, the others have been here a little yeah, while, but they've been yeah. And when I, when I talk to them and other CEOs, you know, they say Silicon Valley is a great place to start a company and a horrible place to scale a company. And so they're all looking for other communities to, to move teams to. Now, historically, the Apples and Facebooks of the world have put customer support here, which doesn't create new startups. You right. need Apple, it was Apple's biggest site, but it was not where all the engineers Yeah, you need, you need product people, right? And so I'll, I'll be on the lookout, but if... If Cloudflare or last, if they're starting to put product people here, that'll be fantastic for the ecosystem. Yeah, I totally agree. And obviously Elon's stuff is great. I mean, it, it looks like there's um, real real momentum. I'd add consumer marketing too, like the fair, the real the real yes growth marketing, consumer marketing. We've got some, but like more on the B two B SaaS side than the real consumer side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go to market. I I will tell you like. We saw a bunch of pitches. I, I have found go-to-market to be the number one, like a, a really cogent and differentiated go-to-market strategy is what separates most companies. Yeah. And most ideas other people have. Yeah, I mean, certainly some of the advice I often find myself giving to technical founders is, uh, you know, and coming from Carnegie Mellon, I met a lot of them um, there as well, in particular where it's that got some really cool thing and it's like, Hey, like you kind of need to have something that feels just as cool about how you're gonna go sell it, right. how you're gonna go take it to totally. market. Like, what's just as clever about how you're gonna go kill the market with this thing as whatever you invented 100%. or what you did, right? Hundred percent. That really separates it. All right. So, to to many people's chagrin, probably in this room right now, who are you know probably really hopeful, um, you are not making new investments, are you? I am. Well, I'll I'll say two things about that. So. Um, as, as a as a general partner at Benchmark Capital, I have stopped uh, making new investments. You're not making investments for Benchmark anymore. Right. That was a couple years ago. I also don't aspire to be a institutional-backed venture capitalist anymore. Benchmark Capital had, from its very beginning, an unusual kind of founding story and structure where they all decided to be an equal partnership. And when they then started bringing on new partners, 
they let them become an equal immediately. And I was, I think, the second new person that they brought on, and it was extremely flattering. I had actually started at another firm where it was hierarchical. So, like, the top partner made 3x what I did on both uh, fees and, and carry. I've had to go through those those trade-offs in my own firm. Yeah. Right, and so all of a sudden this firm came along and said, you want to join us and it's all equal. And so at, at, at Benchmark, a new person gets, like, they get really ahead of the game at the start. At the end, um, because it's equal partnership, there's a lot of pressure to say, am I going to go out there and bust my butt every single day because if if partner you know x hits the next you know instagram i'm going to take as much as they do and so i better be in there swinging and it creates a really nice natural i think incentive for someone to say if they're not ready to hustle anymore to kind of raise their hand and and so all that happens is you're not a gp in the next fund so i'm still a gp in all the other funds and i still am on nine boards so i got it'll be a slow it's not like it's not it's not like a retirement from oh i was ceo at ford and now i leave the building and i'm not not involved when when i started angel investing even i just i did not understand that that like well these are like you know 10 15 year commitments you know like that you're really getting into especially when you're really early angel investing well and with and with the reset we've had in the startup market those windows have gone out yeah you know, it's funny, talk about the reset in the startup market. I, I, I'm glad you said that because I didn't put it in my notes and I wanted to, but um, I, I actually wanted to give you some credit. You're part, a little bit of the inspiration for Capital Factory, actually. People ask when Capital, Capital Factory was founded in 2009, which was right after the 2008 market correction and crash, um, which you're somewhat famous for sending out a note to your portfolio companies kind of saying, hey, you know, watch out, you know, you know, buckle your, buckle your belts, tighten everything up, like, you know, prepare for the worst um, as all this happened. And because um, we hadn't seen anything like that in a while. And, um, and, uh, and that was uh, really part of the spirit of when we started Capital Factory is we were saying, hey, this is a great time to be, if you have money, to be angel investing because, you know, there's a lot less competition for the deals and for talent and for space and for you know for everything else and a lot of great things would get made. Um, so that was 2009 and it was and it was that letter was definitely you know a big big influence on it on it then. Um, I had uh, do you know Josh Silverman by any chance? Yes, he's he's a good friend of mine. We had him here a few weeks ago, and I asked him to, cool. to compare about you know the early days of Evite. He was the founder of Evite. Uh, and uh, and then you know now he's currently the CEO of, of Etsy and he was he's also the CEO of Skype. He's kind of like seen so much through all that. It's fantastic. And um, I was like, you know, what, what's it like now versus then? And he said in a slightly different way to what you said about Silicon Valley. He said, well, back then it was easy to raise money and hard to raise a, come around a company because there was so much competition and everyone else had so much money. Now it's hard to raise money, but it's a lot easier to run a company if you've if you've got money. If you've got a company, you've got a lot more things going in your favor. He, by the way, that's fantastic. You guys had a chance to spend time with him. Um, there are very few big success stories of a new CEO coming into a consumer internet company and kind of reinvigorating it and excelling. And, and the Etsy story is fantastic. Well, he's a special, yeah. special one. He was here for ACL about two weekends ago too. He was back. Um, he, he's awesome. All right, so let's go back to Benchmark. 
this is certainly like a literally like personal question for me. Like I'm running a VC, VC, small VC fund. We are not one of the best VC funds in the world. I wish we were, but like you know we're tiny and we've you know haven't raised that much money and we're still figuring our model is very different. We're still figuring it out. What makes Benchmark one of the best VC firms in the world? Like why? Are, like I listed that list of companies and it was not the whole list. It's just like the easy ones like everybody uses every day. But like Uber, OpenTable, Grubhub, Nextdoor, Zillow. This is just him. Well, actually, him. those were yeah, those were the ones I worked. I know it's just him. Like that's not even the firm. Like I mean, like I mean, this is not some you know. This Twitter, is not roulette. Twitter, Snap, Instagram. Yeah, right. This is yeah. So so why why are well I I go I go back to the. Um, the founding principle of the equal partnership is really powerful and um, it allows us to go recruit the next best general partner we possibly can. I'd say 60% of the time we've stolen someone from another firm so you can kind of see who's up and coming and because we're going to give them an equal seat at the table we generally win that competition even if the other firms decides oh now we'll do it for you it's not the same you came came that way from the beginning yeah. right you know it looks like oh well now you want to you know it just doesn't have the same impact so i think just getting incredible people when when i talk to lps these are the people that invest in venture funds i mean they have one of the hardest jobs in the world but well that's probably not true they have they have a difficult <laughs> challenge not quite. That, they have a difficult challenge in that the window in which you would evaluate a venture firm's probably 20 years. Like it's, it's I don't know even like, and, and so a lot of them focus on um, partner transition and whether the institution is doing something that drives success versus just some individual. Yeah. Um, and I'd say one of the things Benchmark that I'm most proud of and that I think Benchmark has proven is like our fund seven, which was incredible and, you know, had none, none of the founding partners in it. And so you had fully transitioned and kept the magic. So I think a lot about the equal partnership. Um, we've decided to focus. I mentioned focus to two or three of the people that pitched. We only do early stage. We're about 80% A, about 20% B. We never do seed. We never invest without taking a board seat. Um, we take the role of stewardship on the board very seriously. That's a pretty narrow window compared to most venture firms, right, in terms of what we do. And um, there's always a distraction. All, we could have easily raised growth funds and pandemic funds and, and crypto funds, but we didn't, you know. And we, we're also, we think that by being focused, we are out, we're maximizing the percentage of time we're out there banging on doors looking for the next opportunity. So good incentive structures, like I buy that, yeah. that resonates with me, but you, but somehow like you're picking, you're able to pick the very best ones, the winners, like the, like is there, what's the secret sauce to Yeah, that? by the way, it's not just picking, you have to close, as you right. probably know, like, like that, that dance is, is a big part of it like you, you may want to invest and not have the not have the opportunity so i i would say structure and focus i would i'd put one and two if i was forced to think about something else we we have a if we were to all try and write down the definition of what that is i'm not sure we'd get there um but when we're interviewing like a gp candidate that doesn't have it it's very obvious to us and my, I guess my definition of it would be 
someone who studies as much investment success as they possibly can. So you've read most of Buffett, Peter Lynch, like, like you, you know, you, you understand, you know, I, I, I go back to Porter's Five Forces constantly. Like this is just seminal bedrock type stuff that's gonna allow somebody to succeed or not. And then you have to be aware of technology disruption and then the way those two things intersect. So, and, and we heard some of that today, but okay, so everyone's gonna go do AI, but where's that gonna change? What industries are gonna change the most? Like, where are you gonna be able to insert yourself? What are the incumbents doing? Um, the, the, yeah, s seller, uh, buyer power is one that early stage founders miss all the time, especially at universities. Buyer power. Buyer power. So Who's they, the, they think the they're going to build a startup in a in a highly consolidated industry where there's only four buyers. It's almost impossible, you know. And I see that constantly. So anyway, that word is something we talk about a lot. We spend a lot of time, you know, tilting against. Spend a lot of time thinking about. From your perspective, you're at the top, looking down, going like we get the best of the best. We, you know, we get the best deals applying to us. We seem to have pretty good judgment. We're picking these great deals. Why should anybody else even try? Like, is there like, is there any point to the ones that aren't gonna huh. be the 1% of the 1% of like the In very venture? best companies? Yeah. Oh, well look, I, I mean, for, for the 25 years I've been in the business, it's done nothing but get more competitive. Like when, when, when I started, actually like 10 years before I started, there were like five venture capital firms and they shared every deal and they had immense market power over the entrepreneur. Today, there's thousands and thousands of venture firms. Like it's not, and the founders have way more power to, in that And, and actually today there's like lists of them on the internet. Right? Yeah, oh, and that's, that's just, not it. That's just not that's it. pretty the good. Found, like. The founders have all, I'm sure that it's on some Reddit group or whatever, but they've figured out how to game the venture capital community. And so you, you constantly see, I mean, we it, at least once a month, someone will come in and pitch and accidentally leave the name of another venture firm on the slide right. and then oh I'm, I'm sorry i forgot like to change that <laughs> it's just oh yeah sure you know <laughs> like, and so yeah the the games no it's highly competitive and, and i the, another thing i would say is um it's easy to out hustle an old vc like it's super easy to out hustle an old VC. VCs get pretty comfortable. Yeah, they get they get multiple homes. They they start vacationing. They they grow up. You know, and and like, and yeah, you can outrun an old VC. And you'd be surprised where if you go focus as a early young venture capitalist in an area and spend a, like ninety percent of your time like learning. Like, let's skip AI because everyone's talking about it. Let's, right. let's just talk like gaming, right? Like, like there's not, well, I, my, I had a partner, Mitch Lasky, who almost focused in 100% in gaming, but like there aren't many VCs that know the gaming market cold. And if you show up and spend 100% of your time that, go to all the conferences, know every title, play every title. If you're in a meeting with a founder who is doing a gaming startup, you're gonna, you two are gonna get along so differently than, you, you understand you what I'm saying? You speak their language. Yeah. yeah, and you know everything about it. And, like, and so 
I think you can actually break into the venture business, you know, yeah. through overt hustle and focus. A different form of focus. You know, that resonates with me so much. When I, my first business that I started in, in my dorm room uh, at CMU was one of the first email marketing companies, like a MailChimp or Constant Contact. Mm -hmm. And I sold, a, I bootstrapped that one. I sold it for $12 million instead of $12 billion. But it was just like MailChimp, other than that. Um, and, um, uh, and, you know, and, and uh, just you know, through that whole process, um, well, I lost my, lost my train of thought there, sorry. <laughs> Not, not where that one is. We'll, we'll come back to that one in a second. Okay. Um, so, um, so back to the, the, my, I, my question about the top, you know, is there any hope, the 1% of the 1% of the 1%. Um, we've got all these students here, and you answered from the VC perspective, and like, yeah, it's, it's worthwhile to be, a, you know, there's, there's still lots of other VCs. Um, oh, that reminds me of my, my thought on another part. But from the, from the student's perspective, you know, if they, how, if they aren't gonna be the next Uber, is it worth them going and doing it? So it's a great question, and I have like three different answers to this question that I think are relevant. Um, it is a hard thing to do to go be a founder, be an entrepreneur, and start a business. And it's so glorified, you know, I don't know if it's glorified through Shark Tank or glorified through all of the podcasts, you know, 20 VC or how I built this, like, you know, you're gonna go listen to Toby from Shopify, right? Yeah. He's fantastic. Or you're gonna listen to Zuck, or you're gonna listen, and you're, you're gonna act as if ingesting that's gonna impact what you're gonna go do with this little startup. And, and I worry at times that we've, we've, we've created so much, um, excitement about the possible that people don't realize what they're getting into because it can be really hard yeah and most of them don't work yeah. and i tell you like no one writes the book about raising money and getting a few customers and not being able to raise the next round and not being able to meet payroll or letting your team go and it happens all the time yeah and I'm not trying to depress anybody, but you asked the question. But the, fun, the fun parts are actually like really short. Then it's like right back to like, okay, great, we closed this big deal. Now you got to go do this. Yeah. Like, right, you know? And yeah, like, and that's you're, not you're, the, I mean, I think Toby's fantastic. I, I think you can learn from these people, so I don't want to leave you with the wrong impression. Yeah. But it's hard. Um, another thing I would say is if you want to make your first $12 million, you're way better off bootstrapping and selling the company. A lot of companies want to buy companies in a sweet spot between 5 million and 80 million. And the minute, especially a name brand venture firms involved, that exits off the table. It doesn't work for them. And you're probably gonna raise a B and C, and now you need a $500 million exit to put the same amount of money in your pocket that a $30 million exit would have done. Yeah. And so I do think people over glorify taking venture capital and it's worth understanding whether your opportunity is big enough to need venture capital and then to be standalone or whether it might be the kind of thing where you can bootstrap and sell and do very well for yourself and then go do another one. Right. You know, and I think enough people don't do that, you know. 
well, that, that was very much my story, and it reminds me of my, my brain fart from before, but um, you were talking about focus, and I said my first company was an email company. And, um, and so, you know, I'm a community builder, kind of, even though I have a computer science degree, I end up doing all, you know, guerrilla marketing as well all the time too. And so I'm like on all the, the at the time, the bulletin boards and the news groups and other places talking to all the other people doing email stuff. And I kind of became the email guy. And then I started, as soon as I could, I started angel investing in every other email startup right. I could find. The one I actually got invited to and missed was Superhuman. All right, sorry, but. Jury hey. still out. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, right. But um, but 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 that was that ended up you know looked looked pretty good. But um, but I but I was I was totally the email guy, and that's how I got started as an as an investor. Yeah. Is I just was like the only and like I literally was like the only email in, angel investor in the world. It's not like there were like a bunch of them or like anybody trying to compete with me, and so. It was, and honestly, it wasn't a great thesis. Like there were not, the email's really hard. Like there were not a lot of great email companies that came out of it, right? But it gave me that focus. It gave me that place to get started. Then I started investing in Austin. And then I was the Austin guy. And like, you know, 15 years ago, that wasn't nearly, that, that was that cool. You know, like there, there weren't that, wasn't that big to be able to be the Austin guy, you know, like, yeah. and, um, but they got, but it appreciated, it got cooler over time. Um, and, um, and, you know, now it feels good to be the Austin guy. But I, I definitely got it through that same kind of focus. That was how I was able to differentiate us and feel like we could add some value. And if you were an email person, like, yeah, I knew like all the protocols, I knew what you were talking about, I knew all the people, I knew some people at Yahoo, I knew some people at Hotmail or whatever, right, you know, and now if you're in Texas, okay, we got you, like, we know somebody, we can, we can plug you in. Um, the third thing I would say, which is going to be a repeat of something I said earlier, is I think you, unless you've built, well, this would even apply there. So I mean, I, mean, I think you need to have a not a knowledgeable, differentiated go-to-market strategy with your company, and you know, cause you, and you said like, well, you're not going to be Zuck, you're not gonna, like. I have rarely heard of an idea where there's not another entrepreneur in some other city that's got the same idea. Yeah. So it's a race to who's going to get big with the idea. Not, you're not, you know, I see these people, oh, I got a patent on this. Like, eh, who cares? Like, you know, it's in not. In our great. world, that doesn't matter much. Yeah. So, so anyway, those were, those would be the three pieces of feedback that I'd have. Like, if you're going to do it, it's going to be hard. By the way, one of my favorite books of all time is a book called Startup by Jerry Kaplan, which is a failure story. Because all you read are these success stories. And he raised money from all the best venture firms. He hired all the best employees. This was the pre-iPad market, um, and it didn't work. You know, there's a great movie. Actually, there's a great movie about a competitor. That that company was called Go. That a competitor was General Magic. Oh, that's a good and movie. the movie that's free on the internet. I highly encourage you to go watch because it'll teach you about the the uh, what happens when you don't focus. Um, but both those companies, Go and General Magic, um, ended up launching tons of entrepreneurs that were wildly successful post those companies. So. But if it's fun to, I think it's useful to see a failure story in addition to a success story. Yeah, for sure. All right, I have a couple more questions and I wanna make sure to, that we have plenty of time for the students as well. Um, but I wanna now zone in on your most recent talk at the All In Summit, okay. which we asked everyone to, to watch before class uh, today. 
And in that, if I had to put a theme to it all, it'd be around regulatory capture, uh, around this idea of um, that as industries get more mature and get bigger, that, um, that laws get introduced to regulate them, but the laws actually generally get written by the lobbyists who are hired by the big companies. And so basically, it really often stifles startups and new innovation because the big companies end up writing all the laws. And this is certainly something I've heard of and seen before. Um, but we're sitting here, as I mentioned to you when you came in, on this red, white, and blue floor with the Army and the Air Force and a whole bunch of other groups around us here. Um, and we're doing a whole bunch of work with the government. And in a lot of ways, they're, they're trying to get around regulatory capture. They're going like, hey, we normally only buy stuff from these really big companies that only sell stuff to the government. We want to buy stuff directly from startups, directly from small businesses, things like that. But even within that structure, it's like a microcosm of the same thing happening, you know, again, in different ways, right? Um, and, um, and also in your talk, you talked about you know, these other industries where there's so much more regulation. And I'm sure you remember Steve Case a few years ago had his book, The Third Wave, I think it was Third or Fourth Wave, but about, about kind of like the next wave of the internet being all these regulated industries, right? So I'm just curious if you have any insights for what, what, you know, what we're trying to navigate here because uh, actually hundreds of millions of dollars have flown to the companies here over the past couple of years through yeah. these things. Like it's really helping them get funding. Well, I, ha I haven't spent a lot of time backing companies that sell to the government, so I don't want to opine one way or another. Just I don't have the, the relevant data points. Um, I know that a lot of entrepreneurs that have tilted against the healthcare market, as an example, um, become very disenfranchised three, five, seven years in when they discover that it's not really a market that it's this perverted thing where I always said like in a startup there's like one capitalist force of gravity and in healthcare there's like seven forces because it's not a real market and um, and you can get your head handed to you. I mean the example I gave of Tropos where the market just got shut down by Comcast, Verizon and AT&T passing laws in a bunch of states that just said you can't do it. Like and it, 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 I'd never seen anything like, like that before. So I would just, I would be careful if you're going into a highly regulated industry that you may not understand all the forces. And I think through interviewing with mentors and peers and stuff, you can learn and just make sure you're aware of what you're getting yourself into because it, it, can, it can be very, very difficult. Well, my, I've got a few more maybe closing questions I'll come back to, but I want to... I By the way, since you brought up the talk, since I gave that talk, although I mentioned this briefly on the all-in stage, um, I've become even more aware. The, I've never seen this in my entire career, but the young, I'll call them the young incumbents in AI, have built, there's a political article, I could look up the name of it, it's a must read. They have organized in a way I've never seen before and they're trying to pull up the ladder in AI three years in. Like these companies are three years old, they have super PACs, they're putting staffers on 
the just in the offices of the different congressmen, they want to outlaw open source AI models, which scares the living shit out of me, like that that's happening, because I think open source is so important to the entrepreneurial community. John Carmack was just talking about that. Yes, about Carmack's it. upset about it, Andreessen's upset about it. There's literally a, a fissure or a faction that's, that's of divide that's happening in Silicon Valley right now. Because like Reed Hoffman's defending Anthropic and Sam and like me and these other guys are on the other side. Like th this is scary stuff. Yeah. And now there's this huge war. But I um, I hope it doesn't happen. But they're certainly trying to do it. Yeah. Carmack said op open source is free speech. Yeah. You, you shouldn't be able. It's to. bigger than that, really. I from my point of view, um, there's this great book by Matt Ridley that I mentioned in the talk. Um, called The Rational Optimist, and he goes through the history of time, and he shows that the thing that drives prosperity the most are ideas being traded around in commerce. And the easiest example to think about is, you know, going way back in time, but, oh, I learned how to plant wheat and grow it. If I go to another community that doesn't know that and I tell them and show them, that's just free prosperity lift for everybody. And to me, the, the thing in the modern world, in the modern technology world, that's most like just telling someone something productive like that is open source. Yeah. Like, like it's, it's really amazing, you know, it's free information and then everyone can use it. And I would hate to see it go away. I think it'd be horrible for the planet. Not to get too far out there, but <laughs> uh, I, I, on the recommendation of maybe a Naval podcast or something like that, I read this, this recent David Douche book about reality, um, which was awesome, and like the fabric of reality, it's called. And he talks about this concept of really all of the sum of human knowledge as like almost like a, like a living thing, and how that evolves over time, and how we contribute to that, and how that, and, and it, was, it, was, it was really Yeah, really like Wikipedia is a great example. Yeah. Like we, and open, I was just talking to my son about, um, you know, MIT open sourced their textbooks, and, and why, why do textbooks exist actually? Shouldn't there be a Wikipedia-like thing, like a dynamics? Should, should, there should just be one page and all the dynamics professors in the world should contribute and it should evolve and that information should be broadly available to everybody and that's the spirit of open source to me. Um, and that will help the world be more prosperous for sure. Yeah, I love it. All right, I, I'm going to have a couple questions to close, but let's open it up to some of the students um, to see what some of your questions are. So we'll start up here in the front. Hi, so I was wondering, what are your thoughts on like Y Combinator's model and like you can only be a venture capitalist like partner if you're a founder and then like you turn into a VC uh, manager? What are your thoughts on like that thesis? Um, I think are, are, are you asking two questions? What do you think about only being a founder or do you as need to a, be a founder a, to be a VC? Is that the question? Yeah. Okay, easy. So um, I have this uh, saying, which is every time a venture capitalist opens their mouth, they're talking to a founder they haven't met yet. They're marketing. And so if you are a former founder and you're a VC, you will make that your pitch and you will say it over and over again. And if you you know, aren't, then you'll make a different pitch. But as I already told you, and you can go look up, there's a massive variety of backgrounds of venture capitalists. Leave me out of it. John Doerr and Mike Moritz weren't founders, and they're two of the best that have ever walked the planet. 
And so I don't believe that that statement's true. Could it, um, could it help you with a particular type of founder where you're experienced? Absolutely. And are there great former founders that are good VCs? Absolutely. But it's, there's, there's, it's impossible to declare that that's a, a, a fact of, of how the game works. Yeah, I think, um, I, I think another part that you also heard a little bit in Bill's talk before and makes sense with YC as well, is that a venture capital firm is a partnership. It's a group of people that have to work together, right? And they need to, at some level, have some shared values or shared ways of thinking, right? And what, that, that just might be the right thing for Y Combinator, right? You oh, know, yeah. Like, you know, as opposed to like, it just because it really works for them, right? And it really works for their culture and what they're trying to create and the founders that they want to attract. But it doesn't mean every VC firm. There's a do. lot of strategies that VC firms, and there's a lot of successful VC firms that use different strategies. So, and YC is obviously wildly successful at what they do. So, um, I read this article on TechCrunch by Sarah Leary, one of the co-founders of Nextdoor. But they originally started a company called Fanbase that you invested in, right? And she said how when Fanbase was failing, she wanted to give your investment money back to you. But instead of taking it, you just told them to come up with a new idea in three months. So I'm kind of curious, why did you do that? Why didn't you just take the money back? <laughs> okay. I, um, I'd probably edit what you said. I don't think I told them to. <laughs> I think I encouraged it, you know. Um, and it worked. And by the way, um, we, we, you probably know the story that Slack, would, I call these like a, a 180 degree pivot. Like you just stop the current idea and then you go do another one. Slack was like that. Discord was like that actually, for those of you that don't know. Um, they were working on a game, the game wasn't working, and Mitch Lasky, my partner, who, who I mentioned earlier, who was probably one of the best gaming VCs of all time, he, he sat down with them and said, let's talk about other ideas, and it came to that place. I, I will tell you that like the number of people, and, and in the case of Nirav and Sarah, the number of people that know what it takes to make a consumer internet company successful is tiny. Like to really understand viral growth and, and, and network effects and the way you have to make this stuff happen. And so um, there was still, I think they had raised a B, so I think we still had like $6 million at the time. And um, there wasn't any reason to give up. Like it, there were seven incredible people and we had meetings once a week and the, like, like you had just a little while ago, they would go through five ideas a week. And one of the seven had talked to someone who was running a, um, a what was it called? Uh, these neighborhood communities. Oh God, I can't think of the name. There's like a- Neighborhood Association. Association. And he asked that guy if he would build a tool for the Neighborhood Association. And the minute I heard it, I was like, that's it. That, that's what we're going to do. Like that's going to, and then the, and then we built one and then we built three and, and then it worked. Great question. Uh, hi, can you mention again, like go in more detail what you mentioned, like the different gravity barriers, uh, in the healthcare field? Just, just different what? I think you said like different gravity points. Oh, like some, sure. of, the, some of the reasons why healthcare sure. is hard for example. Oh, um, yeah, consumers don't make 
decisions with knowledge of the price. Like, that's just, if, if you study investing and study businesses, like, you always assume the customer is knowledgeable of the decision with price. Like, like that's just not true in that market. It, the, the corporation, the employer, shouldn't even be in the equation. So you have this company playing a role in the market that isn't an expert. Like, like if you run a 10,000 employee company, you're not a healthcare expert, but you're in the healthcare market. And, and that buyer that lives in that company isn't one of the top 10 executives at the company. So, so it's just a bizarre, like, like perverted reality in, in the whole market. The insurance carrier, everyone thinks an insurance carrier, I've seen, I've seen 50 startup pitches that think that an insurance carrier wants to lower, co lower costs. They're, getting, they're, they're making money cost plus. They want to raise how much they spend. Like, they, it, it's all backwards. Like, it's a, it's a hall of mirrors. There's probably 10 more. Like, I'll just spare everybody. Yeah, and, and, it's, <laughs> and, and it's not just healthcare, but there are certain industries, regulated industries, big complex industries that are gonna bring those things, certainly working with the government. Oh, here's another one. Like, that like you would have no reason to know this. Most hospital systems are two companies, not one. There's an operating company that runs the building and the x-ray machine and all this, and then there's a doctor's collective. So you have this idea that's gonna help doctors, but you have to sell it to this other thing. Like, it, it, like it, it's, it's impossible. The whole thing's so messed up. I hope we can fix it. Okay, I was just gonna say, um, I interned for a VC firm that was smaller that like invested in companies with um, health or environmental impact, and they struggled between like financial growth and wanting to invest in companies that like beneficially contributed to society. So I was just wondering like as a VC what your stance is on that like how um, much weight does like the ethics of the company have and like and how much you think they're going to help society in comparison to like the financial returns. So I, I'll, I'm going to give you a terse quick answer and then a, 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 a more thoughtful longer answer. So. Um, the, the terse answer would be, it is so goddamn hard for a startup to be successful in general. Giving it two objective functions is gonna cut the possibility in half at best. So I don't have a secondary objective function. I'm very interested in whether the company's gonna be successful or not, full stop. Now my longer, more thoughtful answer is, um, I probably, more than most, although I, I'm certain Mark Andreessen's in this camp because of his manifesto he posted this morning, that technology and innovation is the key driver of prosperity lift around this globe. And it always has been and it always will be. So pursuing technological innovation, driving open source forward, all these things, I believe, has bigger impact on the quality of living and the standard of living and pro general prosperity. The, the individual human that's probably lifted more people out of prosperity than any on the planet, and I tested this with ChatGPT, I was pleased it got the right answer, is Ding Xiaoping, who brought capitalism back to China and brought ton 500 million people out of poverty. 
So, so <laughs> that's my long answer. Like, I, I think the pursuit is, is, a, is a altruistic one, like pursuing successful companies. Yeah, and I, I just, I, I just, I, I really agree with that as well. I think there have been some limit, some limited examples of people coming up with some really clever ideas that did some really great impact work, and you know had some real good dual, dual, dual impact in that way. But the best things just have the impact, just the fact of them existing. Is they're they're actually just making all of our lives better or more efficient or changing it, and they don't. They don't, and, and it's just, and it's just, it's inherent in what they do. One, of, I'd, I'd mentioned some of the um, the issues in in Silicon Valley. One of them I would tell you is, and I think the Twitter, you know, example has gotten a lot of, of press on this, but some of the companies invested so much energy and culture that, and then they weren't successful. So it doesn't matter. Like if I create this really cool culture that achieves all these other things, but then the company goes out of business, what have I done? Like, in fact, I may have hurt the cause because I've said, I'm gonna run my company this way and meet all these other objectives. And then the company fails, people go, well, maybe that's because you ran the company that way and you've hurt the cause. So it's like, you gotta be careful with these things. In 2016, you were on the board of Uber when they received the, I think the biggest check of all time from the Saudi uh, public investment fund. What was your initial reaction, and how do you think that helped position the company to grow in the Middle East? How, how do you think it helped position them uh, to grow in the Middle East? In the Middle East? Oh, that's a difficult question. Um, it's, it's ironic you asked me that question because I was just telling my son that two people I know are on a plane to Saudi Arabia right now for the investor conference that they're kicking off, which. Um, and obviously, there have been more controversial ones right after Khashoggi. And this gets into a bunch of questions. So um, I have never in my life, and I doubt I will again, been in a position where the capital wars were so ridiculous as happened between Uber and Lyft and, and DoorDash and like companies raising billions and billions of dollars in the private market and attacking each other. It, 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 when we were going through it, I said to myself, I mean, I had a ton of anxiety. I said to myself, well, who would I call? And I, I could get Jack Welch on the phone or, or whoever, like great business operator. They'd never seen that pitch. Like no one had ever seen that. So I, and I would also tell you, and I don't know if your question was more about the Saudi money or just the money. Did, did, did you have a, no, just yeah, just the money. Okay, so you good. I, I really don't want to talk about the other part, but, um, <laughs> um, It was so, like, you raise a ton of money in a, you, you overfund a startup and they're going to be worse off for it. Like, it's just a fact of life and I've seen it over and over again. You'll do sloppy stuff. You know, every great creator and innovator, and, and Steve Jobs certainly said this, you know, constraints drive creativity, constraints drive innovation, create, you know, constraints make you better. And having unlimited access to capital creates sloppy stuff. We lost a billion dollars in leasing and, and it, was a, it just wasn't run well. And we wouldn't have ever launched that if we didn't have all that money. Um, 
at the same time we had this fight with Lyft and others raising all this money and you kind of you kind of had to play the game on the field so I had mixed feelings about it um this <laughs> is what I would say but I did approve it for what it's worth this is also on the topic of uber so in 2017 uh, benchmark filed a lawsuit against very the, uh, specific uh, yeah. dates on the question <laughs> like reporters. go ahead uh, so benchmark filed a lawsuit against travis uh, kalanick uh, due to expanding the board by withholding information and then also several other accusations so yeah. i'm just curious to know how often you guys have to deal with like bad actors in startups that you guys fund I think that was a remarkably unique situation. Um, the, the lawsuit actually was just a, a tactic, really, that had come once the disagreement kind of had gone public. And there was, um, he, he had ag agreed to something in the separation agreement that he was now not, he was backing off of. And that was just a tactic to try and get him to, uh, to do what he had said he already would do. So it wasn't, like that part wasn't, the, the, the bigger issue was a decision to, to take an opposition role relative to a founder that you've backed. And that was a very difficult decision. Um, one we knew our competitors would hold against us later, which they have done. Um, and one that I would hope you don't have, I mean, I would say, how often, I mean, it's not the only example of a venture firm ending up opposed to a founding group. There's this company in Miami that where the founders took all the money in secondary and quit coming to work. I forget the name of it. I could look it up. Um, so they're, they're in a similar situation. Um, it's, it's rare in a success situation. The way, and by the way, we were working at the time with four other investors. So it wasn't just us. It was Chris Saka and, 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 uh, and uh, three others. And so anyway, but what, what was unusual was the decay of the brand and the market position and the legal threats against the company were like no, none I'd ever seen before. So we had five or six state attorney generals that had filed action against us. The city of London was threatening to kick us out. Um, they had this whole investigation, the Holder investigation, because of the blog post that, that, the, that had been written. And we were losing market share fast. And we had data that showed that. And our fear was that there was gonna be regime change brought about by an external factor within the next 12 months. But if we wait, how much has the asset deteriorated even further if we don't take action? And we sat around the room and debated that for hours and hours and hours and decided we had to, we had to come up with, and, and I, as I mentioned with four other investment firms, it wasn't just us. It, it gets played that way on television, I guess, but there, there were four others. It was a hard decision. Uh, and I've also said this publicly, and I, I'll say it again. Um, if we had done perfect venture capital work, we'd never get to that point. Like, like the, the, the problem was that, and, and by the way, I think the money played a role in this, actually, because that question had come up. Like, the, um, yeah, that, that particular round with the Saudis 
they gave him three other board seats and he was able to convince them to put that in the term sheet. And, and so that created this kind of power that then can lead to decisions that aren't perfect. And like, so anyway, it's a, it's an interesting, unique situation. I hope no one goes through it on either side. Yeah, I'll tell you, you know, from a capital factors perspective, especially as we're not a lead investor, we're generally a follow-on investor, so um, we're not often put in a position of having to make those decisions, but often get asked to, you know, whether, what our vote is alongside things. And our default is always to go with the founders, um, uh, but, um, but we've been involved in hundreds of companies, and there are sometimes where just, unfortunately, you have to, you have to, do what's you know what seems to be best for everybody involved and, and yeah. the, the, the other issue in this particular case was um, with the company already valued I think at over 50 billion dollars there were a number of stakeholders that had a lot at stake including our limited partners this this position represented an outsized portion of their returns found foundations endowments and many of the, many of these LPs actually get bonused on paper marks. So they had already banked it, right? And now the numbers were going in the opposite direction. And the employee base, the driver community, there's a lot of, a lot of people at stake. And the one story that, that I don't think has been told as well as it should is just how quickly Dara put out all those fires. He's, he's really a savvy kind of political type operator. And, you know, he put London, to, he took all the state attorney generals went away. And in the past, I'd say two years, I think the brand has finally um, separated itself from the problems we were in. I mean, there, there was a good five year period where most females I knew in Silicon Valley would not get in an Uber, you know. But I think that time has passed. How much do you think AI will be a commodity technology in and of itself, and it will will it be a differentiator for evaluations in five years versus now? I'm I'm not sure I understand the second part of the question. Like for company, like for companies, do you think it will affect their evaluations? So I think the first question is so interesting, and I don't think we know the answer yet, but. I've talked, and, and my own journey of trying to go deep on AI has been, like over the past six weeks, I've probably read hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages and watched tons of interviews. There is a possibility you're right. And, and the way you're, Stephen Wolfram believes that this thing is mostly just really good at text. And, um, and a lot of what people imagine it to be are extrapolations that aren't accurate, from, at least relative to what's possible today. And if that's right, I think these open source models could collide or catch up. And, and there's data that suggests, the Mistral data from two or three weeks ago is pretty amazing. And we have test points now around SAT test or the LSAT or whatever and we can see the the, the pace and and it will be super interesting I wonder at times so, so some other 
person who studies it all the time said there's there's an argument called a dome effect where they think we're racing up against an asymptote, which is not the general perception, by the way. I'm curious what made you ask the question because I don't think anyone's asking that question, um, but I think it's super provocative. Um, it's going to be fun to watch. I don't know. Um, I, I'd, I'd give it a possibility. Like, I'd give it a good 40, 50% possibility that you're right. Um, and it will be um, super interesting if that's true because of all the billions of dollars that have been pushed into LLMs, if all of a sudden it's just kind of eh, you know, um, that would be pretty radical. Um, so, and this, this, this regulatory fight or attempt at, at outlawing open source is super relevant to your question. So I want to, I want to, I had on my list of other questions, this kind of hits on one of them. And so just kind of lightning round real quick. What, what do you think about Bitcoin? Thumbs up, thumbs down. Um, I would say, especially after everything we've been through, it would be a thumbs up right now. Um, because it's not going away. Yeah, and the fact that the rest of crypto kind of flamed out is actually super positive for Bitcoin. Yeah, right, right. So, so related, what do you think about NFTs? Thumbs up, thumbs down. Down. Down, down. It's, it's not coming back. Nah, it doesn't matter. Yeah, no. Blockchain is kind of silly anyway. Like, so, 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 okay, so you're like one of the most experienced people in the world at this. Like, how do we know if LLMs, why do you think LLMs are Bitcoin? Not blockchain, or not, 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 uh, sorry, not NFTs. Well, I just made an argument that might be commoditized. Uh, yeah, but, it might be, right? But, I know, but but, 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 but deep down, I don't think that's what you. Oh, well, well, yeah, no. Well, I said something earlier. Like, I really think it's a UI innovation, and a lot of big breakthrough moments in in tech investing have been around UI. I mean, the mobile phones. If you, for all huge. the new app companies that popped up on it, it's kind of a an infrastructure system and UI, you know change. In yeah, well, phase it, one was getting on the web page, right, right. on the internet. Well, phase even, be even on, before that was client server, yeah, before it, that was just the PC. Then it's getting it on the phone. Yeah. But this is now changing it to, from apps to, I just talk to it. Yeah, and people don't talk about that part as much. When you talk about the UI change. Yeah, the UI it's, part. It's the conversational. I, I, yeah, I think that's super interesting. Yeah. Like, and, and, and I think we're just starting to see what's possible. Do, do, do you, are you a Star Trek? Fan. Do you watch Star Trek? No, I'm sorry. No. Oh man, the, I, I'm. I'm <laughs> we, we have a whole Star Wars floor here, but but I'm shocked at like I think they were so prophetic in their projections of like everything in their computer interface is conversational AI. Like you look at how yeah. they interact with the computers in the future, it's all conversational AI. This it's 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 completely ChatGPT. In two of the pitches, I mentioned this memory thing. So it's you know when I use. Chat GPT for a week. I was like, "Oh shit, this is going to change my life." And I started trying to tell it things, and it only lasts for the session. Right. And I'm like, "What? Like, no, I need you to be here for me forever." Right. <laughs> like, and um, and I literally started texting Sam Altman and others. I'm like, "What's going on?" And 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 I didn't know as much as I know now, but it's based on the way they work. You, like there's a there's a there's a there's a tuning and a training phase and then there's a usage phase and the notion of memory is conflating those two things because you would need to be retuning or retraining constantly on this stuff you put in which is impossible for millions of users against the one thing 
Right. And so that's why I mentioned it. Like it's easy to think, oh well, it'll just do these things. But the anthropic and and I, someone had talked to Mustafa about the same thing at, at inflection. Like this, and and when I when I DM Sam about this, I don't know, six months ago, he said, yeah, we're working on it. So like. It, there is a. Well, they have the feature now of the like, kind of like a pre-prompt. You can pre-fill of like. Yeah, you, before every one of my prompts, give it this first. Right, right? you could you know, do like, that. You could imagine doing that, but how far are you going to get with that? Yeah, like, no, like, and that's where they are now. They've they've recently introduced that. Yeah, but, yeah. But it's, that won't get you all the way no, to where we're talking about. No, and most people won't. And most people won't take the time to go do it. And it doesn't mean someone can't go do this, but I think there is a. So the, the LLMs we are excited about today really are, and this is super ironic about the open source argument and everything, that it all came about because of this attention idea that came out of DeepMind at Google that allowed this kind of breakthrough. And this pin, if, if someone can figure out this other thing, this memory thing, I, I think you're gonna see some amazing stuff. Well, I'm also super excited about it. I feel so fortunate to get your perspective on it. We've also gotten to spend some time with uh, John Carmack, we're investors in Keen. Cool. Um, and Stephen. He's Wolf very worried about this open source thing. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and Stephen Wolfram is is a regular here for South by. We love Stephen, and he's always he's always got some great insights into it. So I've, I've, those are all some of my my people I really look up to for it too. Um, all right, um, we have time for a couple more questions. Thanks for your time today. So I'm a journalism student, and I remember you're talking about the regulatory capture issue. So I'm wondering how effective have journalists been, in your perspective, in holding the companies and lobbyists accountable? And is there anything different that journalists should do? So the question was how good have journalists been at holding, um, at like kind of exposing or providing transparency to regulatory capture? I, I don't think very good, actually. Um, there was an article in the speech that I mentioned where, the, and this is relative to the rapid antigen test, where the Wall Street Journal wrote a glowing, you know, story about how successful Abbott had been, earn, you know, earning eleven billion dollars in the rapid antigen test market, and it was a completely captured. Mar it was a. It wasn't a market. It was a mockery of a market. Like it was. It was created because only two vendors were allowed to participate in the U.S. market when you had 96 in Germany. And the writer knew nothing about that or never looked. The writer never asked what's the bill of material cost of a rapid antigen test and why if, if, if they did, they'd find out it's like 25 cents and you're selling it for $12. Like in this moment of emergency, why would there be a 98% gross margin product for $11 billion of sales? And the government bought it at this ridiculous price when it's on the shelf in Germany at, at one-sixth of the price. It's like, like, it's not like they're not even paying attention, you know? Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know why there hasn't been more. Um, there were some, you know, around the 737 MAX issue, uh, if you remember that, but when, when they really started peeling back what happened, there, uh, Boeing had been given the right to self-regulate on a number of initiatives that had led to the failure. So in that case, I did see some, um, but but in general, you know, it's it's a really sad situation in the U.S. I want to spend more time studying some of the other countries 
Um, I think, and, and I, I do worry that capitalism and democracy kind of corrupt each other over time and that it's a form of calcification. It doesn't really get to your journalist point, but I, 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 think, I think it's a critical thing that we need to figure out a way to kind of slow down and, and well, stop. Well, technology somewhat does it. This gets back to your, to your talk as well, but you know, technology somewhat naturally does this by disrupting, by coming along and making the old thing obsolete. And so suddenly, like, all the postal mail regulation doesn't matter anymore. Right. You know what I mean? It's like, all right, yep, like, yep you spent 100 years coming up with all the rules about how to send postal mail, and like, it just doesn't matter anymore. Yep. Right? And then moves on to the next thing. But, um, but and, then, and then, you know, just, you know, I, I don't know if you uh, read any of, um, uh, oh, what's his name? But the principal, all the principal's books. Uh, Ray Dalio, uh, but oh, he, yeah. you know his his he did. I read one of his ones on you know kind of civilizations, and it was really the kind of like is the U.S. on the beginning of its decline question, and I think it's an interesting question. You know, so like, you, you you go read about. So we want to we're worried about the risk in Taiwan, and we're worried about the fact that eighty percent of high end semiconductors are at TSMC in Taiwan, and so we're going to re onshore. Well, go read about how well things are going in Arizona. They're not going well, and it's very expensive. And even now, TSMC is saying, I doubt we can land anything within 40 or 50% of the cost of there. And you say, why? And Oh, well, there's red tape, there's regulation. Like, you got to get approval for this. Like, we're, we're, we're making it more expensive to build that there. Our workers have higher expectations for things they need than they do in Taiwan. And it's a global marketplace, right? And, and we don't have a right to tell their workers what, you know, you should, you should work with our ethical standards, not with your own. Well, they get to pick their own ethical standards, you know? Um, another example of that within the, the country is Elon was in an interview and he asked why he built the Gigafactory here and he said, Oh, we finished the building in the time it would have taken to get the initial approvals in the state of California. That's why it was in Texas. Yeah. yeah. So though, that's relevant. Yeah. You know, even getting back to being a great, a good investor um, as a secondary investor, one of our great advantages is just being able to move fast. Yeah. Like I got to be able to make quick decisions, right? Well, how do you get in deals? You say yes. Yeah. For, for, you know, for early. Yeah. You know, like that's not the only way. You know, and you don't want to say yes to everything, but like. But yeah, like it matters to the founders who said yes first, right? You know, and who believed in them, and and being able to move quickly. Um, all right, we only have time for a couple more questions, and I'm sure I'm sure that he is going to try to get with his son out of this building at some point, and there will probably be some people trying to ask more questions too. So I'm going to even try to get him out here a little bit early. By the way, I just thought of something. This political Politico article that came out in the past week about. Um, OpenAI and others spending PAC money, it was appropriately skeptical of that activity. Yeah. So that's a, a, an example. Uh, questions from some of our mentors or investors who haven't, who've been holding back? Eric or Shaquille? Thank you. Uh, I, I hope the class is really thankful and lucky uh, to realize how lucky they are to ask questions to you directly. Uh, so this is great. Uh, I just wanted to cover on the point that you made just now about Anthropic and OpenAI setting up these packs and everything else. Aren't they really doing a proxy battle for Microsoft, Amazon, or the VCs who have put billions of dollars behind them? 
Right? Well, I so think they're they're really not doing it on their own. They're actually copying exactly from the Microsofts, Google, and uh, Amazon. I think they're potentially all involved. Um, certainly, just from listening to podcasts and stuff, like the investors are defending the the activity and that kind of thing as well. So it's a there, there's it's a multifaceted situation. Um, Based the on is how do they fight it? How does others fight that? I'm uh, involved in some efforts to try to by speaking publicly about it as one. Um, but yeah, I you know there it, it's the the voices that I think need to be the loudest. Um, well, th there's a very strong argument that if you are wor so they're, they're using an argument that this stuff's super scary as the reason that they need self-regulation, right? Oh my God, it's, you know, it's really awesome, but it's really scary. And so you should only trust us. But if you look at previous, you know, examples of like, do you trust Google? Like, do you trust Apple? Like, like why would the answer be to outlaw open source and then allow a bunch of black box companies, you know, they won't tell you what like OpenAI won't tell you what data sets they scanned. Like that's very transparent in the, in the LLM models. They, they, they fix problems with this layer that's after the LLM is run. And so that's why you can jailbreak it like crazy. And it gets jailbroken every day. In fact, like all the, all the young kids know all the hacks. They think it's the funniest thing in the world to, to, to get this thing to tell them what it's not right. supposed to tell them. And so, I don't know, I, yeah, that's, that's the war. I actually, I don't, I don't, well obviously Facebook has gotten behind the open source side and I don't know how, when I read this article, I don't see a ton of Microsoft they're, and Google, they're kind of involved in their own other issues from a regulatory, it seems to be driven by these three well-funded startups, best I can tell. And some fear-mongering other people who actually think this is gonna wipe humans off the planet tomorrow, which I'm not in that camp, obviously. <laughs> um, as a VC, I really struggle with um, the role of government with antitrust. Because on one side, I see the monopoly behavior yep. and the anti-competitive behavior. But at the same time, with the VC model, acquisitions by these big companies are like the lifeblood of a yep. lot of the returns. So I'm curious about your take on that. Well, you got, you got, you got the worst of both worlds right now because the, the, there's these three or four or five companies that are worth a trillion dollars or more. And they're all on their, sitting on their hands because they believe they can't be active in M&A. And so... You know, it's kind of the worst because they're, they're huge, large incumbents. And so if the government doesn't break them off or stop them, they, they might tie, they might, I mean, Microsoft's basically back to the execution prowess and business model they had 15 years ago. And they're running over Slack and they're running over Zoom and they're basically tying and bundling again. Um, and so it's a, it's a tough question and as a, fan of capitalism, like needing the government to come in and, and play referee doesn't feel right. And as someone who doesn't like regulatory capture, you know, how could I? Now, that said, 
Um, I was at an event last week and Tim Wu spoke, who is a famous academician on this type of topic and had been in the Biden administration. And he made a compelling argument that some tactical decisions by the government that weren't regulations so much as like a decree, like there was a point at which AT&T was told they had to open up all their patents. And he made an argument that that led to these 50 other companies being born. The, the Microsoft consent decree where they told, they told them you can't leverage the browser into the internet, that probably gave a lot of, that was probably a big part of Google, Amazon, you know, Yahoo, like all these companies being successful. So it, it may be that there's a surgical strike to stop someone's forward movement or to break a company in two at least according to Tim Wu, might then create a, you know, a thousand more flowers bloom, which is different from like, let's create a new agency and hang out with you for the next 30 years. You seem to be somewhat of a moderate in the, this whole, you know, often extreme libertarian. Yeah, that's probably right. I, yeah. I will tell you that if I were in antitrust, I, I would add a new test, which is how big of a bully can you be in a partnership agreement? Because, you know, I can remember times, because I was on all these marketplace companies, almost every one of them got called by Google and said, hey, let us ingest your metadata and put all your results in our search results, but we're gonna stand between you and the customer. We're not gonna give you the contact information and we're gonna collect payment. We're not gonna share the credit card. And like that was the, their proposal. And like, there's no way I'd do that deal. And just the notion that they think they can do that deal says a lot about, you know, their market power. Yeah. All right. Last question for you for me, um, and then we'll wrap. And it's just uh, not to put you uh, to put you on the spot a little bit, but you know, we have all these students here. They're all thinking about their lives ahead of them. If you could look back, you know, what what advice do you have to to college students today thinking about? the entrepreneurship path and venture capital See, path. this is, you're not putting me on the spot at all because I have an easy answer. Um, um, about four or five years ago on the campus here, I gave a speech called Running Down a Dream. Um, and it's, that would be my answer, like go watch this speech, it's on YouTube. And I'm actually working on a book uh, on the same topic. And it's just about how to, how to succeed and thrive in your dream job. You gotta pursue your passion. You gotta, it's gotta be something. Yeah, and, and, and I, that's the first part. And then I believe that in the modern world, and I, I have some thoughts in this speech you can go watch, there are techniques. It's easier today than it ever has been to make yourself successful because of the things like LinkedIn and Twitter and your ability to get close to the type of people that can make you helpful has never been Never been easier. Oh my God, it's amazing. Never been easier. So I, I have a bit of a playbook um, for people to follow. Well, what we can't. We have a bookstore downstairs. I have so to go finish the I, book. I can't wait till and that's then, done. Then we'll put it. Yeah, in. <laughs> we'll be able to feature that in our bookstore. Maybe have you come talk about it again. I want to give you as a, as a gift. We uh, one of the, the the military groups that all come through here. If you ever met with a general or anything like that, they have these coins, and I'm, I'm fortunate to get a bunch of them. And we have a Capital Factory coin, so I'd love to give you ours. It's got the Capital Factory logo on one side and the Texas flag on the moon nice. on the other side. So thank awesome. you so much for coming. Yep, thanks and, for having um, me. Uh, really appreciate you spending your time with us. As everyone, as, as Shaquille said, 
um, it's really, really special for, uh, for the students to get to just talk to you one-on-one, -on -one and we know you get a lot of invitations to speak. So thank you. Yeah, thanks for having Thanks for listening to this episode of Austinpreneur. Don't forget to check out capitalfactory.com to learn more about us and join our community. If you have thoughts about the show or ideas on how we can work together, reach out to me directly via email, nickspiller at capitalfactory.com. Shout out to the Capital Factory Dream Team for making this podcast possible and special thanks to Aaron Handworker who masterfully recorded and edited the show. Come back next week for a whole new episode.